one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space, episode 431, for the week of Monday, October 1st, 2012. It's me once again, Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me as well tonight is Mark Raderman. Welcome, Mark. Oh, you're kidding. October already? This, is, uh, this isn't going like I thought 2012 would go. It started too slow, now it's going too fast, but, uh, at, well, let's, let's make a show of it. <laughs> yes, indeed. Last week, unfortunately, I was not able to join the amazing interview due to some schoolwork obligations. And as well, tonight, Gene McCulka is unable to join us due to some family obligations. But we're going to press on anyway, Mark and I, for now, until we get to the second half of the show, which Mark has a very special interview lined up for us. In the meantime, though, let's get right into our first story of the past two weeks' worth of news, which we didn't get to cover because of our interview last week. And of course, one of those big stories of that time period was the Space Shuttle Endeavor, which safely landed at Los Angeles International Airport, or LAX, on Friday, September 21st, ending its cross-country voyage, as well as the final time that a space shuttle will be ferried anywhere atop NASA's modified 747 known as the Shuttle Carrier Aircraft. Because the Space Shuttle Atlantis, which is the only one left to be moved to its final home, is just a tug down the street to the Kennedy Space Center from where it currently is. The Space Shuttle Endeavor, as we mentioned, landed and will then be demated at LAX. And once it is demated, it will then be towed to its new home at the California Science Center, which will be on display after October 30th. It's pretty cool. They actually, the California Science Center just recently released some video from a helicopter of theirs that they shot the landing from. And I thought that was a really cool angle of the landing. Yeah, you know, this is really something when you stop and think about it, and, and I know these type words have been said, but I feel compelled to, to say them myself, you know, this is the last time that a shuttle will actually fly, and fly in terms of being aloft and the wind over the wings and, and you know, those classic metaphors of like the old time sailing ships and the wind in their sails. Well, this was the last time for Endeavor, and... With that in mind, I'm going to pitch out a, a few things that I stumbled across that I think just uh, help help me appreciate how memorable this is. And it's not memorable for the reasons you would think. I'm sounding so sad and somber, but Johnson Space Center, they released a, uh, a thank you to Houston. And they said thanks to all who paused this week to watch the Space Shuttle Endeavor fly over Houston and the surrounding areas. 
This was quite a sight and a great tribute to one of NASA's most successful programs. The arrival and display of Endeavour served honor and thank the thousands, 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 that's me repeating that, of Johnson Space Center employees and citizens of Houston and many surrounding communities whose support was key to the space shuttle's remarkable accomplishments during three decades of service. I just think that's such a class thing that the Space Center put out this press release thanking the community, thanking the city. And uh, wow, there, there were so many little bits and pieces that I caught. How about you, Sawyer, that uh, that really struck you as how unique this is. I mean, Discovery's flyover and entry into Washington was something special, but but this one caught me uh, maybe with maybe because I wasn't there and I didn't see it take off out of Cape Kennedy. I don't know. I, I honestly don't know either because I, I was <laughs> unable to catch any of this flight, unfortunately. I was able to catch Discovery. I was able to catch Enterprise, but unfortunately none for my favorite space shuttle. And it was really sad, you know, first getting to see video of the landing almost a week afterwards but it's still it's it's you know amazing but sad especially since as you've probably heard if you're a regular listener of the show that endeavor has been my girl for all that she's done uh for myself personally but it's i don't know one of the things that uh excited me to read about was the fact that the shuttle carrier aircraft and endeavor flew over tucson arizona and that was at the request of Mark Kelly. And, and Mark Kelly and Gabrielle Giffords uh, were in a position to, to see it from the rooftop of a University of Arizona parking garage. I mean, you want to be high, you want to be out in the open. And they picked a good place to see it from. And Mark Kelly's comment was, that's my spaceship, as the shuttle Endeavour flew over Tucson in the couple's honor on Thursday. It did a loop around the city atop the shuttle carrier aircraft, and then it continued west towards L.A., of course. But uh, Kelly said, that, and this is an Associated Press story, by the way, the flyover reminded him of how challenging it was to land Endeavor. <laughs> Landing a shuttle is not easy, he told reporters after the flyover. It doesn't glide very well. Um, Gabrielle Giffords didn't attend the news conference, but Gabrielle Giffords' aide said that uh, Giffords was elated and started hooting and hollering as soon as he spotted the shuttle. And, you know, for the tragedy that, that Mark Kelly and Gabrielle Giffords had with her shooting, and for the fact that with that, he still commanded the final mission of Endeavor and and had a, another one for the record books, uh, for them to have the flyover there in Tucson, I think that is that is something that the the U.S. owed uh, both of them. And it was in honor of Gabrielle Giffords particularly. Um, also, let me uh, mention a couple things from California. Out in L.A., people that were standing by to see Endeavor come in, many of them all day long. Some hiked up to the Griffith Observatory. Uh, one of the observers says, that's the money shot. And he said, I almost hate taking pictures because then you miss it. And I can relate to that from seeing shuttle launches. When you got your face behind the camera, you lose a little bit of the connection to what you're actually seeing. Uh, another individual didn't get their shot of the, the shuttle and the aircraft when they first approached. They pressed the wrong button and turned off the digital camera. Oh, I could see myself doing that, too. Another one is a, uh, a father with sons that took off work 
his kids were dressed in uh, blue school polo shirts and khakis. And he says they'll probably want to become astronauts or engineers. Another individual said that uh, they were planning to see it from their office, but then decided to take off and head to Griffith Observatory. She said, I could have seen it from there, but I wanted to get as close as she could get. And uh, and people that she related the story to were jealous afterwards. So there was a lot of connection with a lot of people. One One man said... You know, we come from a pretty rough part of town, and he wanted his boys to see something that would encourage him and to have him think about maybe something that they could do in the future with their lives. And so as much as I started out talking about Endeavor being a sad thing, the last time a shuttle would fly and have the air under its wings, this was an inspiration flight. And that's where all of the shuttles are headed is for inspiration and their display sites. That's for sure. I mean, I've spoken with the people who created the Enterprise exhibit, and I also had a chance to speak with one of the curators of the Discovery exhibit, and they both said, and unfortunately I don't have any of this, you know, recorded, but, and speaking with them, they were both saying that that's the main goal, is, you know, to put it on display where, you know, not just people who've experienced it can see it, but people who haven't, the ones who either were too young to remember or weren't even alive when it existed, to inspire them to you know, want to go into a career in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. And I think that's the goal of any space program in general. I mean, I think with NASA, that's their main goal, to inspire the next generation to want to question everything and to want to explore and to do those types of things. And I think even, unfortunately, sitting not in space, but in museums, that they will hopefully still do that. Good words, good words. I think on those words, we should move on to our next story before I start getting any sappier. Continuing along then to our next story is another American launch coming up. And I know that we were just saying, but America doesn't really have as much of a space program in terms of manned flight. Well, that's NASA. We're sticking with commercial space flight. With that, we're going to go to Space Exploration Technologies, better known as SpaceX. As we were there, we covered the first SpaceX launch, or at least the first scrub of it, a couple of days before the launch, when that happened in May of 2012. Well, that was their first official test flight to the station. After that, SpaceX has now officially declared their Dragon capsule operational. And with that, they are planning for their first official operational cargo delivery to the International Space Station for launch on Sunday, October 7th. At 8.35 p.m. Eastern Time. One major milestone that already occurred was that on Saturday, September 29th, for two seconds, they performed a full dress rehearsal, firing up all of the nine Merlin engines on the Falcon 9 rocket. And everything, according to them, worked perfectly. Now, the rocket will do the exact same thing on October 7th. However, at that point, they're hoping that the engines, unlike what we saw, Mark, in May, will stay lit and then will <laughs> launch on its way to the station. And if it does, it should arrive at the station for grappling on October 10th. <laughs> Pardon me for laughing, but I remember being out there on the causeway where they had the press for, for watching the launch and seeing ignition. And seeing that uh, cloud of, of steam and smoke come up around the pad and, and then seeing the, the light of the, the lit engines decrease and thinking momentarily that, oh, no, something terrible has gone wrong. We're about to see one of those fireballs like you see in the, the old uh, films of the uh, rocket program. And uh, 
<laughs> oh, that was tough to watch. So here's the question, Sawyer. What do you think? Is it going to launch first attempt? Uh, well, let's see. None of SpaceX's rockets that have successfully launched have ever gone on their first attempt. But the impressive thing is, is that for a majority of those, especially the last three or four flights, every single one of them has gone successfully once they have. So, my honest opinion, based on their track record, no. Do I hope so? Yes. But based on their track record, I'm not expecting a launch. And please, SpaceX, surprise me, but keep it safe. Well, you know, I'm I'm not just doing this to be contrary, but I'm going to say the opposite. They're going to launch on their first attempt on October 7th. It's going to happen. And this is going to be proof that one of the things I've heard Gene say from a few times has been that it's a test program. It's a test flight. This is where when things happen, you learn and you move forward. Okay, well, the test program is over. This is the actual contracted commercial resupply flights. And I think it's going to go off without a, without a hitch. It'll be like clockwork. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Are, are you sure you're Mark and I'm Sawyer? Because usually I'm the positive one and you're the negative one. I don't know. I just think it's going to happen. I'm and impressed. The last couple episodes you've been, you know, optimistic. Oh, well, think about it. The press conferences for, uh, and I, I lose track of which one's which, but where we've heard Elon Musk and we've heard Gwen Shotwell and we've heard the, the NASA people say, well, you know, if we don't launch on the first attempt, we will launch. And even when they were talking about the Dragon capsule and its operations, they made statements like, if we have a problem, we're still going to come back and we'll get it right. I mean, they were so, to me, they were so uh, wishy-washy. I mean, I didn't get a whole lot of confidence from the way they were talking. And uh, right now, this time around, i got to be honest, I've missed the briefings, I've missed the official statements, so I don't know what the mood is right now, but I just think it's time to, uh, I think it's time for SpaceX to shine. And if they do, gee whiz, it'll it'll prove that everything that uh, they went through, the bumps in the road, and that's all they amounted to, was bumps in the road are worth it. We'll see. Yes, indeed. Most of the major briefings occur about a couple of days, one to two days before the actual launch, which... Talking Space will cover the launch on our Twitter account, at Talking Space, which is now synced to our Facebook account, which is facebook.com slash Talking Space. So it won't be as barren there, but you can be sure to trust us on Sunday night for all of the updates on the launch, how it's progressing. And if it does go off or if it does scrub, we will be there with the updates. So be sure to keep an eye on that and then listen next week for our full update on what happened. Oh, not to steal too much thunder from SpaceX. But Orbital Sciences Corporation today, October 1st, rolled the first stage of their new Antares rocket out to the launch pad of the nation's newest spaceport, Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport at Wallops Island, Virginia. Orbital is going to be launching their rocket, which is this is their going to be their first test flight for cargo supply of the International Space Station. But this is going to be their first test flight, and they expect to have that by the end of the year. And it almost seems like you've got a, a horse race and, and another, you know, another steed coming from the back of the pack. And, well, where did he come from? Well, we'll see. You know, they've still got to get their rocket ready for flight, and they've got a lot of tests to do. But it's exciting to think of, of the Antares rocket, the Cygnus cargo capsule, being ready for business in, in pretty short order, too. Everybody's been working, and they all want to succeed. And, you know, this marks the point where 
we're finally getting American resources to get material to the space station and to return material and hardware. And that in itself is exciting because it was so tough to look forward to that last year when we were seeing the last flight of the shuttle program. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's going to be interesting because there's a major difference between SpaceX's Dragon and the Cygnus. The, The major difference between the two is that SpaceX's capsule is meant to return back to Earth and, in fact, possibly be reused. Orbitals is meant to be flown to the station, cargo taken out, any garbage thrown in, and then be burnt up. That's the major difference between the two, but both of them are definitely going to have their major advantages, and of course, obviously, their disadvantages. But we can't judge Orbital until we see a launch from them, and they are scheduled to launch something by the end of this year, and I am honestly looking forward to that. I'm right there with you. Alrighty then, so we will all be sure to keep an eye out on that, and next week, as we were mentioning, we will have an update for you on SpaceX, whether they launched or they didn't, and see whether the optimist was... Mark this time whether he was right or wrong. I hope you're right. <laughs> I appreciate that. Alrighty then, moving on to our final story for our trip one of two around the table. It's actually about skydiving. Now, you're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is talking space. This is a space podcast. A, why are you not talking about space and skydiving? And B, why is Mark not doing the story if it involves anything to do with jumping out of planes? Why jump out of a perfectly good airplane? I've heard that said, and so far I've felt compelled to stick right with that. (laughs) Well, there's two reasons. The answer for number two is that because he's not jumping out of an airplane, he's actually jumping out of a capsule. And the answer for number one is this next story. And that is about Fearless Felix, or Felix Baumgartner, who will be trying to set the world record for the highest jump And that will be from 120,000 feet, which we're talking edge of space. That's 23 miles above the Earth. Pretty amazing how he's going to be doing this. He will actually be inside a whole big fancy pressure suit. He will be inside of his capsule, make it all the way up, and then he has a whole 40-step procedure just to step out of the capsule and then jump. He will be jumping, and in doing so, he will reach... The speed of sound. In fact, he is expected to reach speeds of up to, if not over, 700 miles per hour. I apologize, I do not have the metric conversions in front of me. That's pretty amazing. That he, Literally, we're going from ridiculously cold temperatures and everything to literally breaking the speed of sound. That is going to be pretty darn impressive when that occurs. And I should add, that is scheduled to occur on Monday, October 8th. Okay, everybody just kind of turn back the clock for an instant and think about those pictures of of Chuck Yeager and the X-1 experimental aircraft, first aircraft to break the speed of sound, the X-15 that was part of so many test flights. Um, a lot of the early jets and fighters and supersonic aircraft, they're all, you know, needle point sharp and knife edge wings and wait a minute, this guy is jumping out in essentially a spacesuit. He's got no structure around him, and he's going to go supersonic. Boy, oh boy. That, it, that there's, I hope there's some good science behind all that, because it doesn't make sense. Well, I can tell you there will be lots of high-definition cameras recording it all. <laughs> yeah, of course, the trick is, who is his sponsors? Did you already mention that? 
I don't believe I did, but this is the Red Bull Stratus jump. So, obviously a major <laughs> commercial sponsor there. Well, I guess if he carried one external to his suit, it would be well chilled on the way down, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes, it would. Until he actually hits, you know, the atmosphere type thing. <laughs> Well, this is going to be interesting, and I bet it'll work, too. I'm just, uh, I'm, call me Mr. Optimistic this time, but, <laughs> you know, the big challenge is getting up there, you know, the whole structure of his capsule to go up, and, um, wow, this is something. I mean, this isn't a day when too many records are set, is it? Not at least of this type, which, by the way, the person jumping out, I should add, uh, Baumgartner has... A couple of years of experience. He's a former military parachutist, a veteran of more than 2,500 jumps, and he's already done this twice. He has done one of them from 13 miles up and one of them from 18 miles up, which all of them, for him, went perfectly fine. For his capsule on the one in July, not so well. It kind of fell from 97,145 feet, took a hard landing, and was damaged, but they completely repaired it. And they said it's all ready to go. That's incredible. So yeah, the thing, by the way, that's going to be taking this capsule up, a 55-story helium balloon carrying up an 8-foot diameter-sized capsule with a 6-foot diameter pressure vessel. Sounds nice and comfy. <laughs> the jump is expected, by the way, to take about 15 to 20 minutes and will be broadcast live via the internet. So grab your popcorn while he cracks the hatch and... We'll see what happens, and obviously wish him the best of luck. All right, so with that, that brings us to the end of our news stories. And if you might have noticed, a lot of the news stories were, you know, somewhat close space-related. You know, the space shuttle, International Space Station, and people jumping back to Earth, you know, getting away from space a little bit. But, Mark, you had a little bit of a different interview that's going to take the second half of this show in a completely different outward direction, right? You bet. And uh, I'm going to throw some history out first, just as a contrast, because the interview is things that we're going to be talking about that are far, far ahead of us in time. But I just happened coincidentally today on October 1st, saw a, a little mention of some on this day in history type thing on the one of my uh, employee pages with the FAA. And it talks about October 1st, 1929. And that was the date that radio frequencies were set aside by the Federal Radio Commission, and those frequencies set the way for air transport companies to develop a network supplementing federal facilities. At the close of that year, some of the major transport lines were maintaining two-way voice communication with their planes in flight. Okay, now that was 1929. It's been a few years. Well, how about right around that same time, predecessor to the FAA was was dedicating the first airway light beacon. Now, of course, we think of lighted beacons and such probably as being the rotating beacon light that you see at airports. It flashes green and white and alternate uh, colors on, on U.S. civilian airfields. Uh, well, this first beacon was put up December of 1926. In 1929... The uh, final beacon, beacon number 25 in Miriam, Nevada, was installed, completing the lighting of a transcontinental airway, closing the final 20-mile unlighted gap. Now, these lighted beacons 
were were in place for quite a few years, and the last one was actually decommissioned in April of 1973 near Palm Beach, California. Uh, these lighted beacons reached their peak in use in 1946. They had 2,112 in service. The numbers declined. A few remained in service to mark obstructions or passes. And these uh, rotating beacons, they had a beam light. The, the lighted beam was about five degrees wide, and it rotated at a set speed so that the pilot looking for his next navigation point en route at night would see a tenth of a second flash every 10 seconds. In clear light, those could be seen for 40 miles. Okay, now why am I talking about all this stuff? Because this was this started back in the 20s. This ended in 1973. Some people listening to the show were around in 73, like I was in my case, and Sawyer wasn't too far after that that you popped into the world. And, you know, here we are talking about going from open cockpit aircraft in less than 100 years to where we are today. And so with that, let's go on to the next story, and I think you'll enjoy it. You ever had one of those days when you realize you won't have the opportunity to be in on something that you really want to be part of? Well, that really bad day for me was changed into a really good one by our guest who didn't miss out. Okay, enough mystery. Who we're talking to is Clara Moskowitz from Space.com. She's the assistant managing editor, and she was at the 100-year Starship Symposium 2012 edition in Houston, Texas. Clara, welcome to Talking Space, and I'm looking forward to hearing about anything you can share with us. Thanks for having me. So that made my day when I saw that uh, that you were headed there and that I wasn't, because a year ago, both uh, you and I met at the first 100-year Starship Symposium at Orlando, Florida, and uh, I don't get to conferences, and I'm sure that you do with Space.com, but uh, I quite enjoyed the one last year. How did how did this one start out for you? Yeah, this one was, was great. I, I've had such good experiences both years at 100-year Starship. It's just been such a neat mix of people with interesting ideas and great conversations, so yeah, even better than the first year. That's good to hear. I I had such a, a feeling of uh, of hope and inspiration from the one before. And one of the things that I don't see quite the same on the itinerary for this year was the sci-fi writers panel that they had at the end of a couple of the days that uh, that we saw last year. And that was that was pretty interesting hearing some top writers in the country talking about it. But there were some other special guests. I see Levar Burton spoke to the group. That's right. Yeah, it seemed like they had a few more actors and a, a few less writers this year, but they definitely had their their art and entertainment uh, quotient filled, I think. There was LeVar Burton, Michelle Nichols, um, a few other interesting personalities for sure. Yeah, I saw where Miles O'Brien spoke uh, to some part of it. I don't know if that was a ticketed event or an open event. Uh, did you catch him? Yeah, that was an open event. He was great. He was moderating a a panel between um, a bunch of people. I think they had a few um, people who had been involved in spaceflight at Johnson Space Center throughout the years. They had astronaut Stephanie Wilson, Ellen Ochoa, um, as well as Nichelle Nichols. I think LeVar Burton was part of that panel as well. A look at some of the topics for the I believe it's the first uh, the first day when things really got going. 
and there were one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, I guess, different tracks all going at the same time. Uh, research priorities in the first hundred years, path to the stars, revolutionary or evolutionary, time and distance solutions, becoming an interstellar civilization, destinations and habitats, future visions, and something called public classes. What can you tell me about uh, any of those tracks? Yeah, I mean, each one was, was more interesting than the next, so it was always a tough decision what to spend your time in. But uh, they had, the time-distance solutions tended to focus on propulsion research, whereas becoming an interstellar civilization had uh, people from different backgrounds, like psychology and philosophy and even religion, talking about those uh, more human aspects of an interstellar mission. And, and really everything in between was covered in the other panels. Uh, you know, there was urban planners talking in the destinations and habitat sessions. And uh, the a really neat woman I met was a, a philosophy professor teaching a whole class on philosophy and Star Trek and how that would apply to interstellar space travel. It just occurred to me that not everybody's familiar with the 100-year starship, but what it's all about is it's a group that's going to pursue national, global initiatives. They're going to look for public and private leadership, grassroots support. It seems like quite a mix, but they want to assure that human travel beyond our solar system to another star can be a reality in the next century. It's going to dedicate itself, this organization, to identifying and pushing radical leaps in knowledge and technology that are needed to achieve interstellar flight. And they're going to pioneer and transform breakthrough applications to enhance quality of life on Earth. That's one of those things where no matter what research is done, we benefit here on good old planet Earth. Even if it is something that's just, you know, plain old nuts and bolts space hardware, we benefit from it here. So that's the 100-year starship in a nutshell. And I also see, Clara, that you wrote some articles. Uh, was there two or more than two, I think, that I saw on Space.com from your weekend with the, the symposium? Oh, yeah. I think I've had about five up so far, and I've still got a wealth of material that I need to write up. So look for more news coming from me soon. <laughs> you know, that uh, that indicates how how I have trouble keeping up sometimes with all the news and as big as space.com is and the amount of resources that you've got. Well, I saw one on Warp Drive that you wrote, and I'm sorry, but but help me help me through this. I, I think of Warp Drive, and I think of science fiction, and it's like, oh, yeah, okay, never mind. Let's go on to something real. So tell me, tell me about uh, how you think it may, really may be feasible. Yeah, I mean, the the big news this year with the warp drive was that it's not as crazy as it sounds, actually. Um, you know, a while ago, back in the 90s, uh, a Mexican physicist, Alcubier, Al proposed a real-life uh, warp drive idea. And, and his idea was that you could use uh, the way that space-time bends and warps by gravity in order to achieve faster-than-light travel without actually moving an object or a spaceship faster than light. So I know that sounds impossible, but it's really cool. The way that he gets around the, uh, the light speed, cosmic speed limit, is that it's not the spaceship moving, it's, it's space-time itself warping. And in front of the, the spaceship, space-time would be contracting and getting smaller, and behind the spaceship, space-time would be expanding 
and this way the uh, ship would be able to travel through space much quicker than normally possible. So this physicist proposed this idea, and, and people took a look and said, okay, well, you know, sure, I guess conceivably it's possible, but it would require prohibitive amounts of energy, people thought. And now this year um, a new study found that Actually, if you adjust uh, the shape of the exotic matter uh, torus that you're using to warp space-time, you may be able to lower the amount of energy you need to something that's sort of a little bit more fathomable, a little bit more reasonable. So there is hope. That's interesting. And I see you referred to somebody from Johnson Space Center in that write-up, and that that leads me to to understand that there are real people and some real engineers and scientists that were part of these presentations. That's right, yes. Uh, <clears throat> Sonny White is a physicist at Johnson Space Center, and, and he's actually even doing tabletop experiments that are a little mini version of this warp drive in the lab where he's testing out uh, to see if he can bend space-time the way that you would need. So. He describes this research as, as very, very preliminary, but it's still exciting that he's even contemplating real-life lab experiments about warp drives, essentially. It probably takes dreamers, to some extent, to uh, to be in on this, I guess, right? For sure, yeah. A lot of the physicists working on these kind of problems are, are people that are doing this in their spare time. This is not their main research tech, but they have a passion for it. They find it interesting. They want to think about futuristic and really radical solutions and ideas, and, and it's just the dedication of people like that that's, that's making the progress on this right now. i got a question for you. I know I've had this thought myself, and I, it usually only lasts in my mind for a, a fraction of a second or or less than a minute at the very least, at the very most. But, um, you know, there's so much to deal with here in our city, our county, our state, our country, our own planet, if you will. Do we really need to be thinking about this sort of a, a enterprise a hundred years so far away? I mean, a generation, two, three, four, however many generations away that would be. Do we really need to devote any any energy to this? What's the point? Well, first of all, I, I think that science and exploration and discovery are absolutely a very good use of every single penny that goes toward them, whether or not they ever have applications back on Earth. So yes, I would say this is totally awesome. It's it's part of human nature to look beyond the horizon, to explore farther, to try to figure out what's out there. And, and this is just right in line with the deepest questions of our nature. But if you need a more practical reason for why you should pursue this, then, then there are plenty. Um, a lot of people will talk about how Every dollar spent on space is really spent on Earth, and the same applies to 100-year Starship. And if you think about it, all the big questions that we need to solve in order to build a Starship for interstellar spaceflight are the same questions and problems that we really kind of need to solve anyway. For example, sustainable living systems, life support, uh, you know, recycling, using resources more sustainably. Those are all things that we're going to need to do if we launch a starship to another star on a really long-term mission. But those are things we definitely need to do anyway. And 
building them for a starship just kind of uh, narrows the focus a little bit and, and helps get it off the ground in a way because you you have this targeted reason for pursuing the kind of technologies that we need right on this planet as well as in space. No argument from me on that. Was there any coverage of, of how this is happening as far as funding goes? Because I know that DARPA was one of the uh, sponsors that, that started this 100-year starship. Um, how I was kind of confused as to how this would happen, how this would continue in future years. So how did we get to the second conference? Yeah, so DARPA provided the seed money to start an organization called 100-Year Starship. And just this year, uh, the leadership of that organization was chosen, and and the grant was given to uh, a group headed by former astronaut, NASA astronaut Mae Jemison, who's a really amazing person. And she is uh, the person that's now leading this initiative. I think DARPA provided a, a small amount of seed money, and they're now looking for private donations and, and, I guess, research grants, and they're looking to use the money that they have to spark further investment in, in this question and in, in this project. How were the crowds? Was it pretty well attended? Was it as as big as uh, 2011, the first one? I'm not sure, actually. Uh, I'm not sure the final numbers. I heard that there were about 250 people registered for this year. So a fairly small conference as far as these things go. But, you know, they're just getting off the ground. And the people that were there were a real interesting mix of, of cross disciplines and uh, people from all different kinds of backgrounds. So hopefully they'll keep doing this every year and, and get larger and larger crowds. Were you in on any of the workshops? I see there were four workshops that were, looks like from what I read on the website, they were two-hour sessions, which was uh, more of a special focus than than some of the shorter presentations that uh, that I saw a year ago. Were you in on any of the workshops? Yes, sadly, I did not attend any of those, basically just because I, I was trying to go to the panel, pres- the, the paper presentations, and they were all held at the same time. But from what I heard, those were pretty constructive conversations. The workshops were set up to allow the public attendees and, and really anybody who was there to have more of a conversation and, and talk to each other about these questions as opposed to having one person present a paper or a study to mm-hmm. an audience. Yeah, I see one of the titles that really has me intrigued, uh, the mission, Human, Robotic, or Reconstituted. That looks quite uh, quite fascinating. How about, um, now, there was some special ticketed events that took place after the end of the routine uh, presentations and the individual tracks. I see Miles O'Brien spoke to the group. There was a um, uh, another special one that I think you mentioned, the Accelerating Creativity. What can you tell me about uh, about some of that? And here, that was a pretty fun night. That was a special dinner they had on the closing night, and uh, they brought together a bunch of interesting people. Uh, May Jemison again was was moderating, and they had. LeVar Burton and uh, Johnetta Cole, who heads the uh, African Art Museum, I, I believe in D.C., and some really interesting discussions about science fiction and art and creativity and how those processes feed into science itself and innovation. 
And one of the coolest parts actually was uh, this really accomplished uh, Chinese calligrapher was doing live art demonstrations, doing calligraphy inspired by the Hundred Year Starship movement. I'm looking at some of the uh, track chairs, the individuals that that worked on each uh, section of the presentations, um, entrepreneurs and doctors in their fields, uh, someone from financial management. <laughs> Did you catch any of that? That was intriguing to me to think about how do you finance uh, some of these yeah, I I did not actually catch much of that this year, but I know that that's a, a big part of the problem as well. Um, you know, as there was some somebody interesting I was talking to was was trying to spark this whole movement toward open source and against um, against sorry I'm blanking on the patents and oh, yeah. he was trying to uh, to make a case for really doing away with patents as they applied to uh, Starship development because they were just going to hold back innovation and sharing of technologies and ideas, and that was an interesting idea, I thought. Wow, they could probably have a whole conference just on the, the advantages. I'm not sure what they are sometimes and the definite drawbacks of having uh, inventions like a, a property that you hold that nobody else can touch unless you license it to them. That's, um, that's got to be a, a big issue for, for something like this that really needs a lot of cooperation, incredible collaboration. Exactly. That's, that's definitely the point they were making, that um, you know, if everybody hoards the little bit of the step forward that they've made themselves, we're not going to be able to work together as a species to get such a large project off the ground. Yeah, and after all, I, I see on the 100-Year Starship website, I see a statement about H.G. Wells and the first men in the moon. That was less than 100 years when it was published from that point to 1969 when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin actually walked on the moon. So why not? Why hmm. not? It's certainly possible. For sure, for sure. I mean, I think it was just really amazing to be around all these people who for, didn't once doubt that this was possible. You know, the, the whole conference was not about whether or not we can do this. It was just about how we should do this. You know, it wasn't uh, should we go to another star. It was uh when and how should we go to another star? And and that was really neat. It was it was pretty uh, mind blowing to see all of these brilliant, capable people saying, "Oh yeah, th this is definitely doable. We we can do this. We should do this. We must do this." I'm curious. You you attend other conferences from probably a variety of material that's uh, presented, both space and aerospace and science, maybe research. How does this compare to some other other events that you've been to, and can you describe what the what the competition is for for somebody's attention that uh, that can't go to everything? Yeah, this is pretty different from most of the science conferences that I end up attending. You know, obviously uh, have a different tone. Uh, all of the research being presented is is heavily peer reviewed, scrutinized. It's much more incremental in terms of how it moves the field forward. And I know that there was a selection process for the presentations in 100-Year Starship, but it wasn't really the kind of scientific peer review that you get at a, at a science conference. They were definitely letting 
anybody with a good idea stand up and share that idea, which I think is great. You know, it definitely fosters its own kind of atmosphere, and you have all these ideas going back and forth, and and this sort of safe space for for sharing of concepts and ideas. But obviously, the the tone is quite different from these a little more staid research conferences, you know, where where people are working on things that are a little bit more down-to-earth. Well, you said one word that really uh, gave me a grasp of what the difference is with some of these other conferences. You said incremental and making small steps and advances within your field. Maybe large ones, but still, relatively speaking, probably a lot of what happens out there is is, uh, the next step. And here with the 100-Year Starship, they're talking about the step after the next step after the next step after the next step after the next step (laughs) and the fact that no one's crazy and can bring anything to the table and say well has anybody thought about this here's my thoughts here's what I think let's talk about it and that's really is that pretty much what you saw in some of the tracks did you was there opportunity for question and answer and discussion or were they were crowded for time or how did that go yeah, for sure. I think it, it varied in different sessions, but they definitely were trying to encourage discussion, and there was a fair amount of it going on, and, and that was the the express purpose of all the workshops as well. So they were working hard to foster that because, obviously, it, most of these ideas and research weren't so fully fleshed as to you know stand up completely on their own. Many of them were designed exactly for the purpose of presenting them in front of others and, and getting some feedback so they could be developed further. And I think that the conference definitely fulfilled that goal. If you were only at one track, uh, which one was most riveting or fun? Hmm. Actually, I was uh, very impressed by the religion track, believe it or not. There was a, a really a, quite a fierce... Uh, controversy going on in in the track on whether or not religious organizations should be part of the 100-year Starship mission. And there were some really interesting speakers arguing, uh, you know, forcefully pro and con about religion and and whether it could help a space mission or, or hinder a space mission like this. That is a loaded series of discussions, I bet, because it it comes down to people have just got to make an absolute commitment that no matter what our faith is, our beliefs, we're going to get along. Exactly. Um, were they were they still talking about the uh, like a multi generational starship where where a crew would board and and they would have multiple generations of offspring that the the captain would be replaced by. Uh, a you know a, a young young person that would grow into into that kind of uh, skill and were they or was it more of the uh, warp drive and and you know quick transportation across interstellar distances that you saw? And a lot of people definitely were focusing on this multi generation idea because I think that some of the the more feasible ideas for how to do this would still require extended periods of time. And, um, yeah, there's there's quite a lot of discussion about how you would structure a starship that's basically like this whole society, this floating world, where, you know, the the number 10,000 got tossed around a lot, as in you'd have about 10,000 people. 
on such a ship. And, and certainly there would be multiple generations and people born on the ship and people fulfilling all the different social needs of a society. It just gets bigger and bigger the more you think about that kind of travel and being able to be self-sufficient for extended extended periods of time with, you know, if you don't take it with you, you've got to be able to, to manufacture it, you know, en route. That's, uh, that's some big challenges. For sure, and, and it just brings it back to that whole idea of all of these technologies that would need to be developed would certainly be useful here on Earth for the kind of problems that we have here in terms of creating enough food to feed these people, recycling all the the uh, equipment and, and tools and making sure nothing goes to waste and utilizing your resources most efficiently. I'm curious. I, I I think in terms of steps between here and there, was there much discussion or comparison with with what we know about spaceflight? You know, well, we need to get back to the moon first, or we need to have a mission to Mars. Did they talk about uh, those kind of building block in-betweens? I think it was a little bit implicit that this is only going to come after we uh, master solar system exploration. You know, uh, we we really still are just taking our first tentative steps uh, in within our own solar system, and a project like this is probably going to come after we've, you know, lived on Mars or lived on the moon or at least sent people to spend some significant periods of time on those kind of worlds. Because, again, there's a lot of technological crossover in in terms of the things that you would need to live on Mars could then be applied to a 100-year starship. So I take it you're all for having some missions to outside of low-Earth orbit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's the next step for sure. It's, It's where we have to go as a species. There's just an incredible amount to be gained scientifically as well as technologically from setting our our minds to that kind of project they've they've done well from a year ago and i guess if there wasn't a conference next year it it wouldn't be seen as a um, a sign of defeat or that something wasn't working from what you just said no yeah i think the question is just you know how often to meet how to meet how to gather all the people that need to be involved in this project together and maybe that will turn out to be having a yearly conference but maybe that will end up being a series of smaller meetings or workshops around the country you know who knows but I think they're they're really trying to reach out to as many people as possible at this point and it's this sort of all hands on deck mentality seems like what they're going with in terms of really inviting anyone and everyone who wants to be part of this project to be part of this project. I know that uh, when I see your articles online, I find them quite interesting to read. So tell our listeners how they can follow you and read more of the, really, the the big variety of material that you publish. Well, thank you. Yeah, I I definitely invite people to check out space.com. It's an easy URL to remember. And we've been covering the 100-year starship in in great detail and hope to have some new stories out in the coming weeks about things that I heard there. You can also follow me personally on Twitter, at Clara Moskowitz. And, um, yeah, just just look out for these stories. They should be coming out soon. And it looks like uh, on the 
space.com pages, there's a search box, and if they just type in your name, they'll come up with a list of articles that you've posted. That's right. Yep. You just you can't beat a good search either on space.com or a Google search with my name and 100-year starship should turn up uh, most of these stories pretty easily. Well, Clara Moskowitz from space.com, thanks for joining Talking Space and giving us a little feel for what the 100-year starship 2012 conference was all about. And I know our listeners will be uh, taking a look at space.com to read more and to follow you there on Twitter as well. Thanks, Clara. Thanks so much for having me. All right, Mark, thank you so much for that great interview. And again, thank you to Clara for doing the interview with us. Yeah, this is one of these things where I I sure wish I'd been there because I enjoyed the first 100-year Starship conference and the second one from everything Clara talked about. And please do search space.com, do a Google search for articles that she's written. She really gave it some fantastic coverage, and we scratched the service in some respects. So take a look at space.com and read more about it. I think you'll find it very interesting. Alrighty then. So with that, I believe that brings this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here today, which includes Mark Ratterman. Thank you, Mark. Well, thank you, Sawyer, for thanking me. It's good to be appreciated. You getting me? We love you here on the show. We couldn't do it without you. I must be in the right place. And again, even though she's not here at this present moment, to thank you as well again to Clara Moskowitz for joining you, Mark, on that amazing interview on the 100-Year Starship. And of course, as always, a thank you to you, the listener, for listening in to our shows. And of course, you know, you can always comment on any of the stories that we talked about by sending us a letter. You can send it to mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com as an email, as a written text, or an MP3 file. You can also mention us on Twitter as at TalkingSpace or post it on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash TalkingSpace. Now, I realize that a couple of you have sent in emails that we haven't read on the show, and we apologize for that. Things have obviously been a little bit crazy here, but we still have read your emails, and we appreciate all of them, so thank you. And, of course, even if you don't send us an email, we still thank you for listening and joining us here today. And, as always, have a great day, night, evening, whatever it may be, where you are. (laughs) 